Welcome to the Healthy Hair Podcast. Your host, Dr. Amy Brenner, is a board-certified OBGYN with additional certifications in functional and integrative medicine. This podcast is meant to help women find reliable, relevant information to help them feel better, look better, and live better. Here you will hear in-depth information about hormones, sexual medicine, aesthetics, cosmetic gynecology, and functional medicine. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Healthy Her. I just want to say thank you for all the feedback, all the kind words, the reviews. We really appreciate your emails. And if you want to email us to talk about a topic you want to hear, continue to send it to contact at dramybrenner.com. Today we're going to talk about something we have yet to even touch upon, and it is compounding pharmacies. What are they? What are they used for? What are the regulations? And we have somebody that's been in the uh, pharmacy industry and is now in the compounding industry, uh, and he has lots of experience. His name is Ray Carlson, uh, the owner of RC Compounding Pharmacy. Welcome, Ray. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate the invitation. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm. So if you want to give somebody a little bit more of your background of, I guess, first, let's just talk about what is a compounding pharmacy? Some people might not even know what that means. And how is it different from Walgreens or CVS or your, you know, typical pharmacy? The uh, Walgreens and CVSs of the world um, dispense commercially available drugs. So the drug comes to them packaged in a bottle. They count out certain number according to what the doctor writes for, puts it in a bottle, and hands it to the patient, basically. We make about 99% of the drugs that we dispense. So whether it's in a capsule form, uh, a cream, topical creams, uh, we do lozenges for under the tongue. Uh, there's, we do uh, veterinary medication also that's in a cream form that sometimes will get rubbed on the inside of, uh, you know, a cat's ear and those sorts of things. So everything that we dispense is, um, kind of manufactured. So we are licensed still as a pharmacy and, and RC compounding can dispense regular commercially available drugs as well. Although we do not do that much of it. The compounding end and the manufacturing end of it really keeps us busy. So the text will actually weigh out the pure powder drug and mix it with some sort of a base or with a filler agent that, that then gets put into capsules. And it's a, it's a labor intensive way of dispensing medications. Um, and w- one of the things that um, uh, I enjoy most about it is the uh, customer patient interactions that we have that is so very much different from uh, traditional retail pharmacies and that we, you know, each patient we've either done uh, saliva test on or a physician has done blood work and, and sent it over. And, you know, we have a, um, we have an office there that the patients can come in and, and we talk about, um, uh, their disease states, their uh, other medications that they're on, um, and then, of course, what they can expect with um, mostly hormones uh, that we do. But I, uh, I actually started in uh, what's called sterile compounding, and that was um, 
about 20 years ago and on and yeah, on. What does I that mean? What does sterile compounding yeah. mean? Sterile compounding is when you get in an astronaut suit and walk through three doors <laughs> worth of clean air before you finally are able to sit down in front of a sterile hood and you're mixing up powders or you're drawing up drug and repackaging it into containers that are, in the end, after being tested, are bacteria-free, hydrogen-free, particle-free. Uh, so that is a real intense form of pharmacy. There are very few compounding pharmacies that do sterile injectable medications. We actually will do um, meds that can be injected into the intraspinal spaces. So there you really have to be careful. It's one thing to give a sub-Q injection. It's something totally different to inject something into the spine that does not uh, you know, have an immune system really floating there that you, know, you, you can't, can't afford to uh, <clears throat> be dirty, as the FDA calls it. But I started out doing sterile compounding and had built the clean room and, and all of these necessary to, um, to do that. And then um, this 2000, I opened RC Compounding. And shortly thereafter, maybe a year into it, I was kind of struggling because there's not really a big market for sterile drugs except for clinics who are doing pain meds and um, uh, pain control, hospice care. Yeah, what kind, like of, what kind of drugs are used sterilely? Um, we certainly don't use that in our practice. Well, we do eye injections. So um, we had a patient that had shot himself in the eye with a nail gun up on the roof and a nurse calls and they need a high concentration vancomycin injectable that they would be able to inject directly into the eye. Well, there's not a commercially available drug on the market that is, you know, 50 or 100 milligrams per milliliter of this particular drug. And those are the sorts of mixtures that we make. So it can be a whole host of um, different uh, different meds that that we put in a in a syringe for uh, for injection. We were making hydroxyprogesterone in oil. That was a big product of, of ours. And uh, it's simply a progesterone and oil. It's a 5cc vial, a sterile, uh, sterile um, vial for uh, IM injection. And so, of course, you know. Yeah, is that um, still a thing? Of, yeah. I mean, it's been over a decade yes. that I was doing obstetrics. But when I, back in the day when I was using obstetrics, we were using that drug, um, progesterone and oil injection for people who are at risk for preterm labor. So are people still doing that? We still do some, yes. Um, the agencies don't really want us to because um, the drug McKenna came out on the market, same, same everything, 200 milligram per ml of progesterone, same oil, same preservatives and everything. And it came out on the market at $7,500 a vial. Mm -hmm. And we were selling, I was selling mine for $25 a vial and still making good on it. So you can appreciate just how inexpensive the raw ingredients are. And so, you know, that's kind of like a professional line in the sand you draw as to when the agency comes in and says, you know, the law says you're no longer able to compound this drug because there's a because pharma is now making it, but <clears throat> you have to ask whether or not it can be available if people can't afford it. 
sure your insurance may pay most of it or Medicaid may cover the $7,500 a vial. But still, there's a, there was just like an ethical point of view there that I had uh, apparently successfully gotten across to not only the board of pharmacy, but the FDA. The FDA has been in my uh, compounding pharmacy three times. And so it's just one of those things that, you know, we understand what the agencies want us to do. Um, but uh, it, there are those just those times that, uh, you know, we look to what is the best interest of society as a whole, I guess. But um, I started doing the hormone creams in probably like 2008. And once I read and, and, and began to learn about the importance of um, not particularly females, we're talking, um, the importance of maybe just progesterone. If you looked at nothing else but progesterone in a female, and even in young females, the, the low levels to which they are walking around due to the stress that they're under today. Uh, once you start understanding some of these um, aspects of life that you never really stop to consider, there was no turning back for me. And the more I delved into it, the more, the more I just, uh, I enjoyed uh, caring for, um, you know, the female hormone patients in particular. I'm kind of semi-retiring now, so I'm not in there interacting with the patients now. And this kind of gives me, I've always been sort of political. And so this has kind of given me an opportunity to, um, you know, do some other things that, uh, that I want to do. Yeah. When did um, compounding heart pharmacies really become a thing? Um, you know, I would say 15 years ago, I don't know if I ever really heard about it or, or paid that much attention to it. But now there are, you know, at least in where I live, I would say there's probably five or 10 within a 20 mile radius of my house. So where, where did it come from and why did it, why is it, 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 is it becoming more popular or is it starting to shrink back down again? I think it's beginning to shrink back down again. <clears throat> I think around, well, when I opened RC Compounding in 2006, I can't say as though it was something that I had really heard of. And so when this patient came in out of the blue and, it, you know, at that time in my pharmacy, I was hoping anybody would walk in the door Um when she walked in at that time and had asked me about it, I can't say as though I really knew very much about it at all. It's just not something that is taught uh, in the colleges. And um, so there was probably a 15 year between that time when I would say it was starting to take off until about now. And actually the board of pharmacy is getting compounding pharmacies and Oh, you um, kind of broke up there. What did you say? The Board of Pharmacy is doing what? Uh, the Board of Pharmacy passed a rule uh, subsequent to USP, United States Pharmacopeia, and they came out with their new mandates that hormones now are considered a hazardous substance, so they need to be contained. So the workers are not being unduly exposed to the estrogen powder. Um, testosterone powder, progesterone, those are all now categorized as being hazardous substances. Um, Interesting, because isn't progesterone yeah. also over the counter? I had a patient ask me yesterday of, I get it from, you know, this cream that I get at the health food yeah. store. Yeah, once it's put into its cream base, then it's not considered 
able to escape into the air. So we have a big retrofit going on now at RSD Compounding. We are building a negative pressure room with, and it has to be vented to the outside. All the packages need to be opened up in a negative pressure phone booth looking room. The workers all need to handle that powder in a hood that sucks room air into the hood and then exhaust out the roof. And so we've already received uh, a call from a local pharmacy here that was doing compounding uh, that is not going to go through the time and the expense to retrofit their pharmacy. And, you know, you can see in some of the Walgreens, they have a little sign in the window that says, we compound drugs. Um, I doubt they're going to be doing what needs to be done uh, because it's pretty lengthy. So I suspect that, um, you know, your typical retail pharmacies that were doing a little bit of compounding on the back counter with a spatula, you know, an anointment slab or something uh, are not going to be able to uh, um, to be able to do what the agencies want them to do. So I suspect we're just going to, you know, we've been busy. We just seem to be getting busier. Do you so think those that are the, game. the birth of a lot of compounding pharmacies, just like yourself, came from doing hormones when that study, the Women's Health Initiative, the, the basically the take home message was that hormones were bad, which, you know, that's a whole other topic. Um, if, if you're listening to this, we actually did a whole session on that. It was episode number 15 and talks about the Women's Health Initiative and how it really did a disservice. But I think a lot of patients and physicians and I guess maybe even pharmacists switched from Premarin and Prempro to bioidentical hormones. Do you think that made a big difference in the birth of compounding pharmacies? I think it did. It had a big impact. And it's ironic because the NIH study actually wasn't, uh, it wasn't interpreted correctly, in, in my opinion, because what was being used in the study was a medroxy progesterone. So it wasn't the natural progesterone that the female uh, produces. So estrogen had, the estrogen medroxy progesterone group had a higher rate of cancer because medroxy progesterone, yeah, it will lock onto the cell site, but it doesn't have the same level of activity that natural progesterone the estrogen group itself showed no increases. So it really showed us that it is the lack of progesterone, or in this case here, the actual blocking of whatever natural progesterone the female had circulating uh, that showed those of us who were already in the game that um, the this, this studies were being uh, misinterpreted. And it, it really speaks to the issue of the female today that we're seeing and, and the level of stress that they have. When you figure one molecule of progesterone is uh, taken in order to create one molecule of cortisol, that's a recipe uh, for disaster for a lot of females that are under a lot of stress. And females today, unfortunately, they are under a lot of stress. Yeah, who's sometimes not under stress? <laughs> exactly. Sometimes they're the breadwinner. They yeah, they're the ones that are providing health care for the family. They're single females are going through divorces. And because of the estrogen in the brain and its potency being seven times that of testosterone, um, females are more sensitive uh, to, uh, to stress than males are. Our, our, our testosterone is kind of even keel. We're at 
I don't know, 1200 when we're 19 years old. When we get to 40 or 50, it starts to drop so slowly. We don't even know we're losing it. It's a, it's a slow transition down. We do not have this 28 day high and low. And unfortunately, females today are not being allowed to have their low. And when you remove that ability for them to decompress in order to experience a high that I'll never experience in my lifetime, um, you're, really, uh, you're, you're really putting them uh, at risk for, for a lot of issues. So it, it's the, the progesterone issue for the number of females out there, if they've never looked up progesterone, if they've never seen how it calms breast cells, how it calms uterine cells, it doesn't counteract estrogen. It just, it just slows it down a bit. So, you know, the study with, you know, they submerged breast cells in a petri dish of just estrogen, okay? And they timed the rate that those breast cells. And then they, they, they uh, did the same with estrogen and progesterone. It slows down the rate of division of the breast cells sevenfold. So it's kind of in, it's a molar potency that you're looking at here. And when a female lacks the progesterone uh, and estrogen is, is able to do its thing unabated, you're not only talking about sore breasts, and we see that at perimenopause, but you're also seeing, uh, you know, uh, we, we see 22, 23-year-old females. They haven't had a period in four or five months. Their lives are so stressed. Their progesterone levels are never able to get up to the peak that it needs to in order to have the drop. So on day what? I don't know, uh, day 19 of a female cycle, progesterone is supposed to reach a certain level. And then from 19 down to 20 through 24, it, the rapid descent of progesterone is what triggers the, the, uh, the bleeding to, to, to occur. Well, if progesterone, because of stress, is allowing only a blood level of three, it's going to go from three to one or zero, and that's not enough of a drop to signal. So... The stress, I think if you look at it in an evolutionary way, progesterone, I think, is nature or God's way of, of deciding whether or not now is a good time to be fruitful mm -hmm. and, and to have, have offspring. And when, when the deer is on the run and constantly under stress, um, progesterone levels remain low. It makes it difficult for the egg to have a nice... Uh, uterus to, imp to implant and take hold and 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 then you know you know very well it just the, the issue just cycles from there next thing you know you start seeing thyroid problems uh, I've been a pharmacist for you know 40 years how many how many thyroid prescriptions have I ever dispensed for a male you just don't it's like 88 no. percent female mm -hmm. it's because the blocking and the high cortisol um, and then, you know, the other concern that we have that we're trying to reach females on is, yes, your 20-day cycle is being disrupted. You're having difficult periods. Consuming ibuprofen in, in an environment of high cortisol is, is probably not good either because when cortisol levels are high, the immune system is already suppressed. And if you throw ibuprofen or an anti-inflammatory on that, you're further you're making it more difficult for the immune cells to get to those areas of the body uh, that are meant to, um, oh, 
Right. Me, you and I could talk here, like but... that. We could talk for a whole hour yeah. just on that oh, yeah, of the, the dangers of NSAIDs. The other day, my my legs were bothering me after a workout, and my husband's like, "Why don't you go take some Motrin?" I'm like, I, and I had to like give him a little mini lecture of like, you know, you really shouldn't just be popping NSAIDs, you know, with every little aches and pains. There's a lot of health problems of chronic NSAID use, so. Um, anyway, that's a whole other topic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it certainly is. And I forget how many tons a year are consumed in the United States, but, uh, but it's a lot, you know, yeah. and, um, mm -hmm. so, but you know, estradiol or bioidentical estrogen or progesterone, you can get those at a commercial pharmacy and they are FDA approved. So how is it different or why should somebody who's listening to this consider, or, or a doctor that might be listening to this, what would be the benefits of getting, let's just say, we'll talk about progesterone first. Why is progesterone uh, different than what you get at a regular pharmacy? I have my answers, but I'd love to hear your answers. Uh, there's really not much difference at all, except for the fact that uh, we can tweak to whatever amount that we want. My scale goes out to one one thousandth of a milligram. I can but as much or as little as is needed in, in each dose. Right, um, versus what's commercially you know. available for the progesterone, I think it's only 100 or 200 milligrams, as well as what's, at least this is my knowledge, is what's commercially available is immediate release versus with compounding, we could either do sustained release or immediate release. Correct, and what we add into the capsules can uh, prolong uh, the, the action uh, of the of it, but you know there was uh, what Prometrium that was in an oil sort of a and and, and yeah, you it was could in pretty, peanut pretty oil. Much Is yours in peanut oil? Uh, in an oral, we do not do a progesterone oral capsule in oil. Right, versus what's commercially Ours available is, is peanut yeah. oil, which it's my understanding that peanut oil is not a it's not a healthy fat. No, it's not. It, it, it'll definitely line the gut. I don't. I, I think peanuts in general are probably not a very healthy, uh, healthy item. Allergies aside, and you know when you look at, in my opinion, when you look at the actual transaction between a pharmacist and a patient, you're not just talking about the product. If you are working in a retail pharmacy, you're working at a CVS or a Walgreens, you are dealing mostly in the product and not the service. So you have both of those going on. The service is just as important as the product. Anybody can stand back there and count by fives, put them in a bottle and hand it to you and ask you to sign on the dotted line if you don't have any questions for the pharmacist. Anybody can hand bags out the drive through window and give some kind of reminder that this is your last refill or this and that and and not think anything of it that has been pharmacy's issue for probably 30 years and this is why you no longer have independent pharmacies around any of your listeners i would caution them it doesn't matter what prescription you get you have to develop a, a relationship with your pharmacist and force that pharmacist to do what the law says that pharmacist is to do any agency that would come to me and say your your scales aren't calibrated uh, uh, you know, you're not checking potency on a final product in this. Uh, um, 
remind them, as I did remind them in, in an action that I took against the Board of Pharmacy, and I'm sure you're probably aware, I did file a lawsuit against the Ohio Board of Pharmacy. Yeah, let's talk and about that. And this was subsequent was to my, uh, yeah, this was subsequent. Well, this comes down to the issue of patient safety. And the law says that a pharmacist has three categories of things to do before they hand that drug to the patient. First of all, they ask them a bunch of questions to find out who they are. What other medications are you on? What over-the-counter medications are you on? What's your disease state? So like, why are you even here? Uh, do you have a medical device in? Uh, there's 12 different things that should be asked, not just your first initial last name, your birthday, so they can find you in the computer. There's 12 things that somebody should be asking so that they can give that to the pharmacist, could, could go on file, and when the pharmacist looks at the prescription that a physician has written, that pharmacist can put that request up against what information the pharmacist has received. So that brings us to the second area. The pharmacist then is supposed to decide whether or not what this physician is requesting suits this patient. Is it for the eye and not the ear? Is this patient already on this drug? Did this patient just have this medication filled somewhere else? Maybe it's a doctor that doesn't know the patient has three other specialists writing for the same thing. The pharmacist is supposed to take the time to, to address all the warnings that the computer brings up, call the doctor to clarify stuff, put notes in then and in, into the patient's profile, and then decide whether or not to put, a, put it in a, a bottle and put a label on it. When that is done, and the tech or the pharmacist then checks the, checks the patient out, there too, in some way, the law says, make sure that the patient understands they have the right to sit down with that pharmacist and go over 12 more things. What happens if you miss a dose? How do you store it? What kind of, what kind of reaction might you expect? How's this going to make you feel? The dangers of it, you know, those are all the things that are laid out in the law. And this law was passed in 1990. The law is called OBRA 90. Um, it happens to be that the uh, title of the book I've been working on, hopefully by year's end. But this law was passed in 1992, quote unquote, thwart the abuse and misuse of prescription drugs. So all of these things are laid out so that when somebody hands you a prescription, you are going to ensure that when that patient leaves with that prescription in their possession, that it is they're going to understand it, that they're not going to abuse it, going to sell it. And we have had three decades worth of chain pharmacists making whatever they make, 60 bucks an hour, 65 bucks an hour, content not to say anything about the pace with which they have been working, putting their head down, letting the technicians blow through all these warnings. The survey from the pharmacy last April showed that the average pharmacy, retail pharmacy, is filling a prescription every 45 seconds. You cannot possibly uh, abide yeah. by the laws and the rules in 45 seconds. You just can't. And that is a retail pharmacy. You're not even talking about mail order pharmacies. They fill a prescription every five seconds. They need to abide by the same rules. And the facility down near you, they've got eight, eight tractor trailer rigs every single day that backs up and loads up the prescription for mail order patients. So, you know, when you're talking about why compounding pharmacy, why are 
oxy compounding versus so well no you know, sure. i've been on this earth for almost 53 yeah. years i don't think i've ever had a pharmacist ask me all those questions no i did a survey through the university of akron after the the, the uh judges came back in the seventh district and my lawsuit was to the board of pharmacy it was a polyrhythm mandamus i actually filed it on your behalf too because it was ray carlson and the citizens of ohio against now board of pharmacy it was just simply asking that the board send in inspectors and tell us how they're filling a prescription every 45 seconds and abiding by the rules and that was it well the judges thought i failed to purport the fact so i did a study out of akron and 70% of patients think that pharmacists don't even know their names. Half of them can't tell a technician from the pharmacist as far as identifying. That's how little they know them. And 90% of patients who have had three or more prescriptions filled a month have spent less than 60 seconds ever talking to a pharmacist. So you wonder how it is drugs like OxyContin can fly under the radar for as long as it is, as long as it had, without even being recognized that it was addicting. When this law over 90, everything about it is meant to pick up on these sorts of things. So, you know, back to your original question, I'm sorry for, for expanding on it so much, but back to your original question, there's, there's the drug, and then there is what is to be attached to that drug. And the service part of it, if you go to a CVS or a Walgreens today, have almost no service attached to it at all. It's put it in a bottle, ask if you got any questions, and out the door you go. When you go to a compounding pharmacy, because the, you know, we'll fill 90 prescriptions a day. Um, I have two pharmacists on staff. I've got, I don't know how many technicians, 30 total. Um, you know, the service part of it, in my opinion, is just as important as the drug itself. So any agency that, you know, would come in and say, you know, are this and, you know, this and this and that about what we're making we always remind them that it's it's a twofold a two-part transaction going on here and so you know as far as your listeners and stuff i can just like i can't impress upon them enough that when they have their prescription filled whether it's at a compounding pharmacy or whether it's at a walmart or a giant eagle or cbs or wherever um that they need to understand that the pharmacist is responsible for doing these sorts of things and even though it's so broad and the way that it's being undermined today doesn't mean that it's not supposed to be done and so you know we so see what happened with your lawsuit use and misuse. what happened uh, with your lawsuit <laughs> there's there's this thing called standing so you can't just go to a court and say uh you know what i don't like dr amy brenner i'm filing a lawsuit against her you have to have standing. I have to have shown first that you hurt me some way, either financially, um, you defamed me and that caused uh, some, you mm -hmm. physically injured me. You have to have standing so the courts don't get bogged down by unnecessary. And seeing how I wasn't, I'm not being hurt by CVS and Walgreens directly, I'm actually getting busier because of the whole scene that they're in. Uh, I had to prove standing and what I was asking for was called public standing. And that's why I filed the lawsuit in your behalf as well. All the citizen, I was going for public standing. So they would listen to what I was having to say. If I was granted public standing, which they haven't given in 16 years, 
they would have listened to what I was asking the board to do. Public standing only is given if the issue is important, the public cares about it, and more people will die if the judges don't side with me. And because it's hard to prove that the opiate problem has been related to retail pharmacy or the number of hospitalizations due to drug misuse, I didn't nail down specific incidences of people being injured. And because it hadn't been given in such a long time, they, they dismissed it without listening to what I was asking the board to do, just, just based on those grounds. But um, it is what it is. Now, in my retirement years here, I, I hope to uh, you know, be trying to educate the public more, just for the sake of maybe saving the profession. Uh, the issue that we have going on right now is uh, CVS says they'll fill a prescription for all General Motors employees for $2. Rite Aid comes in and bids, they'll do it for a buck fifty, and Walgreens ends up winning the contract for a dollar. So now all GM employees have to go to all, all Walgreens for and, and the pharmacy only makes a dollar. Pharmacies really are not profitable today, um, sort of thing. So I think it's important for listeners to realize that should they get a wrong pill in, a, in the bottle, should they take the wrong medication? Uh, or they have a reaction to a medication that they were never warned about. Uh, any number of errors. Errors are not required to be reported uh, in Ohio, so we don't really know how many there are. I think it would behoove all the listeners to understand. Just go and Google Ober 90 uh, drug use review, Ober 90, and see that should anything happen with a drug error, uh, you know, they have recourse and maybe cure the the courts, um, you know, we can try to fix some of these things. Let's switch gears and talk about some of the regulations about bioidentical hormones, since um, that's the main thing we use a compounding pharmacy in our practice is for um, compounding our hormones. Um, one of the main reasons is, is there is not any commercially available testosterone for women, um, which is, which is odd. And Sometimes I, I hear some of my colleagues say, well, there's no data about testosterone in women, um, which I, I think like, what are you talking about? Like, there's a lot of data. You just haven't read it. Um, maybe not to the extent that was in the Women's Health Initiative, but there's data, you know, dating back to the 1940s about using testosterone for women. Why do you think... Uh, kind of these organizations are so uh, pro withholding testosterone to, to women and even to men? Uh, there's, I think, stigma. You know, there's just a lot of stigma behind it. It should be estrogen that they should be more concerned about with its potency. You know, if you're dispensing estrogen or prescribing estrogen without keeping an eye on levels, it's much more potent than testosterone is. Um, right. I think testosterone I, has some nuisance side effects, but I have yet to seen bioidentical testosterone cause any true harm other than some nuisance cosmetic side effects. Right. In the female you're talking? Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, there's a lot of the industry that is allowed to function just because maybe agencies have bigger fish to fry that attempts in the past to 
shut us down, so to speak. Uh, really, really was met with a lot of um, uh, backlash from the public uh, that uh, I, I don't see them in the future going that direction, uh, particularly now with the economy being as challenged at it, as it is. I think agency budgets are going to be coming under pressure and they're really going to have to prioritize what areas of patient safety it is that, you know, that they want to go after. Um, That's good to hear because periodically, mm -hmm. maybe I might've sent you that email is there's an email circulating around periodically. And I don't know what organization that's putting it out, but basically saying you're compounding your compounded hormones are at risk for being taken away and that the FDA or whatever regulatory agencies are, are coming after your compounding hormones. So write to your legislators and let them know how important this is to you. Right. Right. And who those individuals are that, you know, are stakeholders enough to, uh, you know, drum up that sort of fear. I'm not particularly worried. Uh, I'm not worried just in the sense of uh, price. And again, you, you almost want to go back to challenging the FDA on their definition of something being commercially available. Well, the true definition of commercially available is an article of commerce that is afford, afford, affordable by the people. And some of these drugs have become unaffordable. I used to buy one grain thyroid tablets, a bottle of a hundred for $7 and 99 cents. Now it's over a hundred dollars. The entire thyroid line of drugs has increased tremendously. And now a hundred, a dollar a tablet may not seem like that much, but when you consider the public now is having to deal with other areas of inflation as well, they're going to be a little more um, agitated uh, should an agency do something that makes their financial lives even more difficult. The thyroid powder, so Armored Thyroid is a mix of T3 and T4, and it's, it's available in, these, in bulk powder, a kilogram powder. It's like a, a kilogram is like a gallon bucket of, of powder. So a gallon bucket of thyroid powder at one time that we used to buy for $100 is now over 5000 And it was not long ago. I mean, and it just came available again just within the past few months. You weren't able to get it for a year, year and a half. And that's some of the games that some of these pharmaceutical companies are playing as they're merging and buying one another out. Well, somebody bought up all of the pig thyroid glands at the processing plant or something like that. They cornered the market. They made the stuff unavailable for a year and a half. And then all of a sudden, when the same distributors come back out with a kilogram, it goes from $100 to $5,000. So we're not compounding thyroid capsules anymore. We were able to tweak if a, a half a grain was too little, but one grain was too much. We could, we could do any amount in between that. And, but we're dispensing now the thyroid tablets and whether or not that was the pharmaceutical company's intent. Um, you know, so I think, yeah, that's a shame. I think financially, because yeah, it is an issue I, with 
commercially available pharmoid farm or thyroid drugs is you're right sometimes you want an in-between dose and it's not available yes. and um, that's part of the that's part of the service that is being given so again i think the argument comes back to you're not just talking about the drug yes i can compound thyroid capsules one grain and we have in the past and uh, we, we did a lot of it and yes you can buy a one grain tablet from cvs but the argument also has to be, you also have to pull in that service part of it. You know, when, when we interact with our customers and the patients, you know, we, we make sure that they understand what's going on. And, it, you know, again, it pulls in cortisol and why maybe their thyroid has gone bad to begin with and some behavior modifications and stuff that they need. So unfortunately, I don't think that the service part of what we do has been looked at yet. And uh, it's a horn I've been trying to toot here for the past 10 years. And um, that I think once the public realizes, or they really need to just educate themselves on, on this aspect of pharmacy, that they'll understand that compounding pharmacy is, uh, I think it's gonna be here to stay. And, it's, and I think we're even gonna get busier as economically oh, good to hear because uh, things become more challenged that's good to hear because when i get those emails that your compounding pharmacy or your compounded hormones might be in danger that's just terrifying and terrifying for me as a patient and also terrifying for me as a right. physician of how many lives we've changed with bioidentical hormones right you know and the other thing is that uh, big business tends to be a more fragile business model so you would think with all of this money that is that they're making like a cvs okay they made 65 billion dollars last year you would think with all this money that we are expending on in healthcare that we would be in a good position to handle whatever crisis came our way i.e covid well we saw that in spite of the trillions of dollars that we spent in healthcare, um we we were not we were not ready we no. not staffed certainly not staffed enough we didn't have we didn't have gloves. No, no, nobody, nobody had any masks and this and that. And so the independent compounding pharmacy, I don't know about all the others, but my staff is about a, a, a while ago, we, we beefed up on six months supply of everything. So no matter, you know, if COVID rears its ugly head again or something else happens, I know that as long as UPS is, is going, you know, and even then we could deliver it. But no matter what happens, we have already secured and have in our possession a six-month supply of everything, from syringes to drugs to caps to gowns to whatever. And I think that sort of business mentality also speaks uh, in the favor of compounding pharmacies, that agencies realize, they realize this benefit that we have in being able to help the community. I know when COVID hit, we were putting hand sanitizers, masks, and gloves, and a bar of dial soap and Ziploc bags, putting them in uh, baskets out by the road with a sign just saying, help yourself, sort of a thing. So we were, we were kind of ready, you know, we was, were stocked up and ready to go. And, and agencies see that, they, they, they realize that, that there's a benefit to that in, in helping the people and making sure that the people you know, don't become agitated. So I think going forward, compounding pharmacy is going to be just fine. 
Yeah. Well, that's good. But have you seen the recent NAMS guidelines that were released, I think, just not last week? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So for those Probably. of you who are not listening, yeah. NAMS stands for North American Menopause Society. And it's an organization for physicians to get uh, advanced training in basically menopause medicine. And and I think in general, I was really supportive of their overall recommendations of their their pendulum is swinging. If they said that hormones are for most people, the benefits extremely outweigh the risks, particularly if you start it within the first 10 years of menopause, there's no longer this, okay, you've been on it, you should wean off of it, or you should stop taking it. It was very pro hormones. Um, but it wasn't so, it wasn't very pro compounded compounding pharmacy. <laughs> yeah. In fact, it actually, here's exactly what it says. It says compounded bioidentical hormone therapy presents safety concerns, such as minimal government regulation and monitoring, overdosing and underdosing, presence of impurities and lack of sterility, lack of scientific efficacy and safety data, and lack of label outlining risks. It makes it sound like you're like mixing up in your like, you know, <laughs> just your back room or something. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry to laugh now. And, and probably uh, in 2000 and uh, uh, when did the New England compounding tragedy happen that might have been pertinent before the FDA got involved? Yeah. So after the contamination. People might not know about that story, but that was a, yeah. tell, tell us that story is. Uh, right. Well, there was a uh, compounding pharmacy doing sterile compounding and their facility happened to be located next to a dump. And the, and the intakes were taking in the fumes from the dump and it caused vials to be contaminated. The owners didn't care about testing. They didn't, and they were, and they were shipping to, uh, I don't know how all, all different states with Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck's name on it. And the owners eventually went to prison. But in a short period of time, I remember Mitt, Mitt Romney uh, was debating Barack Obama. And it started scrolling at the bottom of the screen, prime time, that individuals were on their way to the hospital. So many had died from contaminated drug. And that... That started at 79 people, I think, died. 700 and some got meningitis, which is a, a very painful uh, state to be in. Uh, that the FDA took over compounding pharmacy if you're shipping across state lines. And all, you know, uh, individual state boards of pharmacy then were allowed to continue regulating compounding pharmacies that were not shipping over state, but they had to sign some kind of understanding with the FDA that FDA was still kind of in charge of everything. So RC compounding has been inspected by the FDA three times. I don't Wait, know how many times. Wait, but it says here that you're not regulated and there's no monitoring. Oh yeah, no, no, that's, that's false and misleading. That's absolutely <laughs> false and misleading. And you know, you have to wonder why they would say something like that. Why would they... Uh, why would they believe that a drug manufacturer's drug was purer than what mine is? Like with my 17P that I make, the hydroxyprogesterone, it's a simple mixture. The commercially available copied it identically. Everything from the benzyl benzoate to the benzoate, everything was identical. And yet they come out on the market with $7,500 per vial when I'm charging $25 a vial. 
where is that money going to? Is this organization that is speaking in this way receiving any of that money from pharmaceutical manufacturers? I mean, uh, that's a... I would but, have to guess yes. Yeah. Well, you know, my scales, I, uh, uh, I can do something in a small beaker with a scale that can weigh a grain of sand and make sure that it is mixed properly. I bought a $60,000 MAS machine, and it's, it's probably better than anything that, I don't know, but I can't imagine a pharmaceutical manufacturer has an actual MAS machine on such a large scale. But this MAS machine, you take your ingredients and you, you dump them on with some titanium balls, it spins it so fast that it ensures everything is broken down and mixed and the purity. And when we send our samples out, everything is within a couple of percent of what the stated potency is on them. 15 yeah, years so ago, was that is, the way um, things was? Yeah. Who, what do you have to do in a compounding pharmacy as far as monitoring or testing, like what you're making is what it's supposed to be? Yes. It's so it's a, it's a random sampling and a, um, validation process that you do. So let's say I want to make a particular uh, drug and, and I want it to be 10 milligrams per ml. I have to do that three times and send it out for testing three times in a row on different occasions to make sure that I'm able to be within what they allow to be a 10% difference. So if I say it's 10 milligrams on the label, if it comes back at nine milligrams, that's fine. If it comes back at 11 milligrams, that's fine too. So you have to be able to do that uh, three times in a row and then continue to do that every year. You, you also have to revalidate if you got a new machine. So if we were using a, well, an unguator, it looks like a milkshake mixer, you know, before we were using that instead of the MAS. So if you change your process now, we're no longer using the milkshake mixer, where you're going to use this new MAS machine, you have to revalidate, you have to revalidate your, your, uh, your product. And of course, when the FDA comes in, they look through all the records now. It's, it's all the stuff that didn't Wait, exist. Wait, so the FDA comes in? Because this says minimal government regulation and monitoring. So what do you mean you're uh, inspected yeah, well, by the I, FDA? I think I might, <laughs> I might happen to be the most inspected pharmacy in the country because the FDA has been in RC compounding three times. Most compounding pharmacies wouldn't even let an FDA inspector in. Uh, because prior to the new law, it's called the DQSA law, when the, when the uh, contamination issue happened. So when the federal government took over uh, compounding, they, it was subsequent to the DQSA law. And but prior to that, if you're an FDA agent coming into a compounding pharmacy, showed your badge, they wouldn't let them in. Now, Board of Pharmacy here in Ohio, yeah, you had to let them in. That's all changed. So... FDA yeah, comes so who in. Is, who you is keeping track them. of farm? Who is keeping track of compounding pharmacies? Is it is it the FDA? Is it the mostly state board of pharmacy yes. and the state board of pharmacy? If it's a compounding pharmacy, so you have dual. So RC compounding has been inspected three times by the FDA. Each time they're there for a week, so they go through everything. You can you can try to fool the system now all you want, but if you're not somebody who understands that. 
really what they're asking you to do is be a better pharmacy. They want to make sure that there's 10 milligrams per ml. They want to make sure it's not contaminated, that you're not contaminating your workers, that all that's good stuff. And owners that don't realize that, owners that believe, well, nothing's happened in the past. Why do I, gotta, why do I have to do all this stuff all of a sudden? Those are the ones that aren't around any longer. Now those compounding pharmacies that are in business, when these agencies come in, um, <clears throat> they don't mess around. You don't offer them coffee and donuts. They go right to your records. They, they uh, interview technicians. They, they go through everything. They even want to know how much money you're making. So you're not going to be able to escape agency regulation. And it's a good thing. It's, this is all good stuff. Yes. I actually, before the New England compounding tragedy happened, I went to the Board of Pharmacy three times to ask them to change the rules to allow how pharmacies to do more. And I even warned them something was going to happen. I told them, well, there's Mickey Mouse prescriptions coming in from out of state. You don't have any inspectors to go up there and, and, and see how, just how they're making these drugs. Let us do more. We were only allowed to do 5% of our total sales. I said, let us do more. Change the rule. Well, two months later, New England compounding happened and all conversation was off. The feds took it over. And so for any, any group or organization to claim that there is not oversight, that we're just mixing stuff in the back room and we don't care if it's five milligrams or 15 milligrams in every milliliter of cream, uh, they are mistaken because we know that when an agent shows up, whether it's a board of pharmacy or the FDA, they walk in with their computers, their briefcase, they show you their badges, and you're kind of done working for a week. Uh, you try to keep up as best you can, but you, can't, you cannot escape the oversight that they say uh, you know, no longer exists. So I, that's, that's one I definitely take issue with. Uh, same. Like, I love their overall general message, but it was really disappointing to see this. And you just have to wonder, like, wh what is their motivation? Because I just think that the, that information is false. So, yeah, it is. Your agenda is not matching reality. It just isn't. And shame on them, you know, because they're really uh, um, in some ways, you know, they're they're kind of hurting the public a little bit by not allowing more of us. I mean, I wish there were, I wish all of the CVSs and Walgreens were compounding pharmacies first and retail pharmacies second, because they would get a taste of the type of service that lawfully is supposed to be given uh, to every patient. And, you know, we, uh, we, we wouldn't have so many, uh, so many stresses in the world if, if people, uh, you know, started doing what they were supposed to be right. doing. From my standpoint, mm -hmm. the, the compounding pharmacists that I work with are just invaluable. It's great to have somebody like yourself and the other compounding pharmacies, pharmacists that I deal with just a, a text, to phone call or an email away about dosing questions, uh, drug interactions. Um, it, and uh, there's just so much more we can do yeah. with with compounding compounded and you know much of those questions that we're seeing now is can you make this you know i can buy a gallon bucket kilogram of lidocaine and i could <clears throat> i can make enough lidocaine injection for everybody in the state of ohio but i can't really do it because it's commercially available well it was commercially available a few months ago and then there's a shortage now it's on back order again and so clinics and hospitals are calling simple lidocaine 
lidocaine with epinephrine. So, you know, oh. how many topical procedures, sutures, and that, you oh, know. That is a constant stress in our practice. Yeah, of how am I going to do exactly. my surgeries without lidocaine? I know my right. colleagues of doing epidurals of how are we going to do epidurals? And it, right, my, my right. staff every day is searching all of our sources of how are we going to get lidocaine? It's, it's very stressful. Of if you knew, now this is, this is what's kind of weird. The board of pharmacy at our RC compounding is kind of under the board of pharmacy. So everything that goes out of RC compounding has to have a patient name on it. That means the feds don't get involved. If I send it out the door without Mary Jones's name on it, the feds are involved. Then you're like wholesaling. That's what we do down at RC Outsourcing. I can make lidocaine and send out 50 doses. Lidocaine just isn't something that we've validated yet because it's very expensive and it takes a lot of time. And by the time you get it done, the shortage is over. Whatever happened that caused the shortage is now cleared up and it, it wasn't financially uh, a, a deal enough for me to have invested that amount of money and time to validate that I can make it at the outsourcing. But I could do it at RC Compounding if you just send me a prescription with Mary Jones's name on it. But you have to know Mary Jones is coming in. You know, you have to know she's scheduled, order it so that at least a day ahead of time I could overnight it. But if you knew all your scheduled cases, and faxed a prescription to RC Compounding with Mary Jones, her address, birthday, a little bit of information, and a single prescription signed by you. I can make up a syringe or a vial for her and send it to you. And that is the difference between RC outsourcing and RC compounding. Uh, kind of I do the same thing. So at least I uh -huh. don't have to be yeah. canceling surgeries uh, in my office for that reason. Right. So, now we can, over, you know, you can today. overnight it. Yeah, we can overnight anything. So, um, you know, yeah, but I just thought that was interesting. Well, thank you so much for joining us and informing oh, everybody welcome. of what a compounding pharmacy is and definitely debunking these myths that about the regulation and safety. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Her. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook and the web. Go to www.dramybrenner.com to learn more. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute as medical advice, the practice of medicine, nursing or other healthcare services. No patient-physician relationship is formed. The information in the podcast and any references, material or links are at the sole discretion of the listener and not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Listeners should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical issues or diagnoses that they may have and should seek medical advice from their healthcare provider for any such conditions.